0: Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. Many of the books that have made the biggest difference in my life are the ones I first encountered in college. In fact, if I remember anything from college, and sometimes I'm not sure how much I remember, it's the books that I read there. And that's a good thing. I can't go back and hear the lectures I heard or the ones I slept through, but I can always go back and reread the books. And when I do, something wondrous happens. The lectures come back to me, too. I read these books the way I read them because my professors helped me do so. I lived on campus through my college years. One summer, there was a fire, and everything we stored in our dorm was incinerated. Clothes, bedding, books, everything. Not to worry, we were told. The school had an insurance policy. All we had to do was send in a list of all the possessions we'd lost to the Flames. We would be paid back for all the essential items. I'll never forget the response I got back, along with a check. I was reimbursed full value for my down coat and comforter. But sadly, the university could not reimburse me for the loss of my books. We're sorry, they said. But books are not essential. Luckily, everything else I was taught at college said otherwise. And recently, I got to talking about how sometimes the most essential books find you at the exact right moment with today's guest.
1: My name is Hari Kondabolu. I'm a comedian, writer, and podcaster.
0: Whether you know him from his podcasts Politically Reactive and the Kondabolu Brothers podcast, or his recent Netflix special, Warn Your Relatives, you likely know Hari Kondabolu as a comedian who will also make you think. His act talks frankly about race and inequality, topics that have been on his mind a long time, a really long time, like ever since he was a kid.
1: I grew up in Queens, New York. We lived in different parts of Queens, Jackson Heights, Floral Park on the Queens side, not the Long Island side, that's very important to distinguish. uh, Tell me, what's the difference? Oh my God, it feels like night and day. Queens kids, even though we lived in a fairly suburban part of Queens, you know, it was still like city money, city buses, average incomes, just completely a different experience. Plus, I don't think anybody from New York City wants to identify with Long Island, just out of a sense of pride. I remember my parents wanted us to move to Long Island in the middle of high school. My brother and I were both like very clear about no, we cannot live in the island. We're going to be screwed up. Don't you understand? You're going to screw us up. Our personalities are going to suffer, which I still stand by. Grew up in really diverse settings, diverse in every sense of diverse, like racially, people whose parents were immigrants from all over the world, people who themselves were immigrants, people with documents and without documents, a range of economic statuses, like all kind of living together. And I didn't necessarily know who had money and who didn't because with Queens, block to block, it's very different. So I kind of grew up sheltered in, in diversity.
0: So I want to get a little into your reading life. Were you a big reader as a little kid?
1: No, I wasn't a huge reader. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't read a book in way too long. It's mostly, like, essays. And I actually still get the the New York Times as a hard copy to read and, like, the stuff like that. But as a kid, I, I think I was maybe more than average but not, like, a kid who read all the time.
0: But there was another thing that Hurry did like doing as a kid. I loved like organizing things,
1: uh, whether it was Halloween candy, or if I was going to play action figures, I would create a whole world for myself. I remember wanting to write a series of books, like action adventure books. And so I wanted to start by like writing out all the titles of the potential chapters. So I knew what I was going to write. So I wrote like 18 different titles and kind of where I was going to go. Never wrote the books. I just liked the organizing part.
0: Unsurprisingly, he was also good at being funny. But Hurry says he wasn't the standout comedian, even in his own family.
1: I was funny as a kid. I was never the funniest in my group. I feel like my brother has always been funnier than I was. My mom's always been funny. I think my mom dealt with a lot I think both with like she was a doctor in India and then she got married and she moved to America and she was raising kids so she found ways to deal with that through humor and even at a really young age like I was really close to my mom like we were friends as much as we were you know mother son and so we would laugh a lot and she was really quick she was witty I hadn't called my mom for a couple of weeks I was working on something and I I said something to the effect of mom I'm sorry I didn't call this week and she said, no, it's okay. It was a relief. And that's what my mom is like. She's just quick. I think it it throws people off because I think when they see this accented older immigrant woman, I don't think they expect that. There's a whole set of expectations and I don't think people know what to do with that. I don't think when people imagine immigrants, they imagine the complexity of that experience. My mom came to this country when she was what, like 29. Like, she's lived in America longer than she's lived in India. Like, who she was when she was 35 isn't who she is now. You know, the core of who she was doesn't mean that that that's still there, but it's not. Doesn't look the same. And I think people sometimes lose that when you know you hear about immigrants, and especially when you see the media and you don't see immigrants portrayed with such complexity.
0: And as he moved to college at Bowdoin in Maine, Hurry found that not only were his new environment and his classmates different than what he was used to, they saw him as different.
1: Growing up in Queens, New York and then all of a sudden you're in a place that is so white and where diversity is identified as a thing. Like in New York, people weren't talking about diversity because it's New York. That's like talking about air. I mean, yeah, it's just what it is. But you go to Maine and diversity is almost commodified. That's a value, right? And I became diversity. And I did not like that. You know, I didn't like also being asked, where are you from? And in New York, when a white person asks you where you're from, you can ask them where they're from. And they're not going to just say America. They're going to say Ireland or, or Greece or I'm Italian. Like, you know, or they'll give you their fractions. But there's this sense of we're all from somewhere. New York is an immigrant city, right? And so going to school in, in New England and being asked, where are you from? And I guess saying India, because I guess that was the response I assumed. And even though I'm born and raised in Queens, New York, and then asking somebody, well, where are you from? And they'd say Melrose, Massachusetts, or Waltham, or some other, Medford, or you know, whatever. And it's like, no, those are towns in Massachusetts or just outside of Boston. I, I want to know where you're from. And you realize, oh, I'm the outsider to them. You know, these are kids who were going to boarding schools and private schools and using the word summer as a verb and who had buildings named after them. And, it, you know, like, oh, that's funny. Your name is the same as, oh, okay, I see why, you know. It was, um, you know, it was very different. The way people spoke, the way people dressed, you know, I'm growing up in New York and the late 90s hip-hop generation you know it's not that I listened to a ton of hip-hop but the styles were like baggy clothes and I'm wearing baggy jeans going to a place where everyone's wearing tweed jackets not tweed jackets but like button downs and ties and khakis and like it looked like school ties like it looked like a
0: a movie didn't seem like a real thing it felt like a, a time warp but in the middle of that time warp a book came across Harry's path that snapped him back to a new reality.
1: I'd heard about The Karma of Brown Folk for, for quite some time just because the, you know, the name is kind of amazing, like
0: Karma of Brown Folk, like that, that was such a shocking name. The book by academic VJ Prashad is a sort of sequel to The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois.
1: Du Bois talks about how Black people are seen as the problem in America. Everything is a problem. It's the black problem. And Vijay Prashad and Karma of Brown folks says that South Asians and Asians are seen as the solution to the black problem. You know, you know I think um, Du Bois writes something to the effect of what does it feel like to be a problem? And Vijay writes, what does it feel like to be a solution? It was on, It was a summer. I remember it was on a break. And uh, i read it on a bus. I remember I started reading it on a, I don't know why I remember this so vividly. I remember reading it on the bus. I was coming from Flushing. I was taking the 17 bus to my parents' place in Jamaica. And I had been holding it for a minute. I would bought it who knows how long ago. And I just remember devouring it and just being shocked. It like shook the foundations of what I thought it was to be an Indian American and all the things that were that were told to me as reality. It, it was uh, it was something I just I remember I just tore through, and the whole time I I just I can't I can imagine the look on my face, of like page after page of uh, like revelation after revelation, you know. Something that I think as an adult it's it's maybe harder to have, you know. But at that point, like it, it was amazing.
0: For Hurry. Prashad's challenging of myths around race changed the way he thought about his own experience as a person of color.
1: Asians and South Asians are seen as these model minorities. We're able to do things right. So how come black people can't do things right? And how come they're struggling when this other group that is also from a minority group is achieving? And it's buying into that myth. And that buying into that myth is pitting Asians and South Asians against black people. And it ignores the actual conditions of how people got here. We were always told that like we were we were special, it was something about Indian culture and we uh, we value education and that we were extremely special and gifted and it's not to say some of that isn't in true, but it's it's ignoring the, the idea that's not why everyone was doing well necessarily. It was shocking to read all that when you were like nineteen
0: or twenty. So this just blew your mind.
1: Blew you know? my mind.
0: When we come back from the break, as the United States grapples with the aftermath of 9-11, Hurry finds himself continuing to reckon with the karma of brown folk. Hurry Kondabolu was early on in his college career when he tore his way through Vijay Prashad's The Karma of Brown Folk. But the impact of the book would take him far beyond his college years.
1: I don't remember if it was pre-9-11 or post-9-11 when I read it, but it certainly, post-9-11 had a huge impact. If I didn't read it after, I certainly, it resonated more. After 9-11, I felt my skin in a way I'd never felt before. I think at, after 9-11 happened, pretty immediately, I, I could feel that things were going to change. Just because it, you know, I knew the country well enough to know that there was racism and this just happened and all the people were brown and i knew something it wasn't going to be positive but i think i was shocked by how quickly the country's xenophobia came out how patriotism and jingoism are different that like this isn't the patriotism that i knew of the the i remember being in a class it was a human rights class there was a professor henry lawrence who i was very close to we're still very good friends i loved henry's classes i remember walking in he was outside smoking a cigarette which was certainly not what you'd normally see from a professor before a class looking depressed smoking a cigarette and you know we weren't talking about the reading he came in and he wanted to talk about what happened and he wanted to talk about what happens from here you know it was very like for me it was like kind of it was very um it's like he knew what might happen, and it certainly for me it kind of woke me up to the possibility. That, that was one big thing because there was this one woman who, you know, even in a, in a few classes, constantly spoke and was totally into the topic. I remember, constantly re- raised her hand, and all of a sudden, w- you know, when the question was asked, "What happens now?" she raised her hand and she says, "We need to bomb them. We just have to bomb them." And he was like, "Who?" And like, I don't, I don't know, but we just, we just have to respond. And I'm like the last class you were talking about human rights and you were all on board but as soon as it becomes close that was the first reaction and if that's how we're seeing other human beings in this macro level how are you seeing me it was so frightening and then reading about what actually was happening you know, Sikhs being killed, Balbir Singh Sodi being killed at a gas station in Arizona, people all over the country, kids being bullied, people being detained and deported, there were FBI raids. This all shook me to my core. Like, I I was seen almost like a threat in a way. I wouldn't, I remember, I still don't. I try to shave before I go to the airport still. I am very mindful of how I'm going to come across I remember being pulled out of line a lot early on. I remember times where there would be seats available next to me and people wouldn't sit down. Stuff that never happened before. Really strange stuff. And I think I I put it together. It was around the time I read Karma of Brown Folk. I think I put it together that this is what black people deal with all the time before 9-11. And it's embarrassing that it took that long to make that connection. But, like, this is the experience of being
0: feared constantly. For Hurry, Prashad's book came at exactly the right moment, changing not only how he thought about race, but also giving him a path forward. Reading Karma
1: of Brown book and seeing our place in it as South Asians, it, it shook me because I was starting to feel some of that, just an inkling, just an inkling of being threatened by people who were afraid of me, by, by being stared at a little more harshly. It wasn't just the curiosity. It wasn't just the, oh, what is he doing here? What is he doing in Maine? It was, what is he doing in Maine and is something bad about to happen? It was an incredible time to read that book and for that book to sit with me, considering all that was going on. And, And I knew that I wanted to contribute positively to the world and this wasn't what I wanted to see. I mean, it was pivotal. I read that book at just the right time.
0: So you sort of swung from being the solution to the problem.
1: I felt like I went from being seen as the solution to wanting to solve the problem.
0: And after college, Hurry began to work at solving that problem when he got a job doing the very thing he had excelled at as a kid, organizing. He moved to Seattle, where he worked as an immigrant's rights activist. And while he was there, Hurry found himself exploring a hobby he'd been quietly pursuing on the side ever since he was a kid. I did comedy at night there.
1: There was a a comedy scene in Seattle that was thriving at the time, and it was a young scene, and I, I was getting up every single night after work. So I had this job where I was dealing with victims of hate crimes and meeting refugees and people who had gone through some of the most awful things you can get through, either on their way to America or in America. And at night I was telling jokes, and not necessarily about what I'd experienced in the day, but it was, a, it was certainly a stress relief. But I did it for me. I did it as a hobby, and I started to build a following, which I did not expect. But I just assumed, oh, it's Seattle is a real liberal city, so people like somebody doing something different.
0: But Hurry's comedy was getting noticed outside of Seattle, too. Soon he was invited to the HBO Comedy Festival, getting spots on Jimmy Kimmel Live and Comedy Central, and wondering if his hobby was something he should be pursuing full-time. And throughout it all, the thing that made his stand-up stand out was the way he spoke about the very issues Prashad examined in The Karma of Brown Folk.
1: No one had heard people saying what I had said before. You know, I was an act that was political and talked about race and talked about my experience. And certainly was aggressive in how I talked about race. Just the idea of a South Asian comic at the time was still shocking, so the idea of being critical the way I was, I think, was new to a lot of people. And so I, I decided to pursue stand-up, and I had been doing that for 10 years. I would probably tell me when I was younger to question everything, that it's okay to not follow the rules sometimes and not all rules are righteous, and everyone is giving you an opinion, is giving you something that has a point of view. And that doesn't mean it's wrong, or it doesn't mean it's wrong to agree with, but it does mean that everything has to be taken with a grain of salt because human beings aren't empty vessels. You know, they come with their prejudgments. I probably would say it in much easier language because I'd be talking to a child, and also I'm sure the child would be freaked out by the fact that I exist. I'd come from the future. So there's all sorts of things that would have to happen. But after we get through the initial shock of that and whatnot, I think I'd probably want the kid to be a little bit more... I would definitely want that kid to be a little bit more critical and have that awakening much earlier than I did.
0: But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson with editing help from Alyssa Martino, Alex Abnos, and Becky Celestina. Thanks to Hari Kondabolu and Sheila Breen Kenny. If you'd like to learn more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.